Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. We've been looking at the book of Philippians because I think in many ways I've needed, so for much of what I'm sharing is very selfish, I apologize for that, but in many ways I need my joy rekindled, my joy restored. That might be true for some of you as well, uh, maybe not, you know. Uh, so you can help me in becoming, having my joy of the Lord renewed. And the book of Philippians is all about the joy of the Lord. It's all about joy in him. And keep this in mind. You know, we think of joy as being happy about things, but joy is the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy. It's a manifestation of God's presence in our lives, is joy despite the circumstances. Paul will say this in this letter. He said, I learned, I love that. He's so honest. I've learned. He didn't say I've arrived. I've learned. I'm learning to be content in any state that I'm in. Of course, he means any condition that I'm in. But we used to say, and I know I've shared this before, but I still think it's funny. Back on the East Coast, we used to say, and that means whether it's Louisiana or Wyoming, you know. Uh, I don't know. Some of you are from Louisiana and Wyoming, and you're saying, I don't know what you're talking about. But from the East Coast, that's like, who wants to go there? Of course, you don't want to say that too loud because the Lord is listening. And, you know, and he says, maybe that would be a good place for you, you know. But the point of the matter is, Paul says, I've learned contentment. I've learned to find satisfaction. I've learned to adjust. I've learned to find joy wherever the Lord would put me, however he would provide for me, and wherever he would want me to serve and however he would have me to serve. So a lot of this comes through. But now I want you to look at chapter 1, beginning of verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the good news. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Messiah. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Messiah out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the good news. The former proclaim Messiah out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Messiah is proclaimed. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. 
For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Yeshua the Messiah, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Messiah will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Messiah, to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Messiah, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Messiah will overflow on account of me. This passage reveals in many ways, I think, how it is that we can find joy in God's plans and purposes. Because let's be honest, many times God's plans and purposes do not appear very good to us. Sometimes his plans and purposes just don't seem to manifest the kind of blessing, the kind of joy, the kind of desires that we initially had. God's plans and purposes are not dictated to him by us. They are provided to us by him and he who knows best. I'm certain that if Job had a say in God's plans and purposes for him, he would probably have asked God, can we consider something else? Can we consider something a little less drastic? I'm sure that's true for many, many persons throughout the scripture, no less Paul. We read that Paul, 10 years earlier, around 55, 52 or so, this is in the early 60s, but about 10 years earlier, he had written a letter to the believers at Rome. Perhaps one of the most, one of the five most important books in all of the Bible, the book of Romans. And in that letter, not once, but at least two times, he mentions his desire to come to Rome. He did not plant the believer's body in Rome. That congregation of believers probably got started as a result of what transpired on the day of Shavuot, or Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2, when Jewish people from all over the then-known world, the Roman Empire, converged on Israel to celebrate the festival. Because remember, Shavuot is one of the three pilgrimage festivals when all Jews need to come up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. It was there and then that some of these individuals from Rome saw what happened when the apostles, the leaders of the disciples, the followers of Messiah, those that were with him, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to address the crowd in languages they had not learned, but which God had provided them with so as to speak to those who were listening to their message. And in the midst of that manifestation of the Spirit of God, Peter stands up. And in another way that the Spirit of God manifests himself, Peter proclaims the good news. The result of which is 3,000 individuals come to faith. No doubt some from Rome. When they returned to Rome, 
they continue to share, or at least assuming, they continue to share their message, and the body of believers in Rome began to form. Their reputation began to spread. Paul makes reference to this in Romans chapter 1. And then when he writes them, 10 years before this letter to the, to the believers at Philippi, he had told them how he desired to come to Rome to be with them. Probably, we don't know for sure, but probably, Paul was thinking that this congregation in Rome would become a hub from which ministry would flow out to the rest of Europe and beyond. His desire was to get to Spain. He makes reference to that. And I think he was looking at Rome as a stop-off point from which he could launch ministry to Spain and from there, wherever else the Lord might lead. But what Paul did not anticipate, I imagine, is the means by which God would bring him to Rome. He probably thought he would go to Rome the very same way he had gone to the island of Cyprus, took a boat and sailed there. Or perhaps the way that he had traveled through Asia Minor, taking the land route with his fellow servant Silas. What he did not expect is how God's plan for him was to unfold. He says to us, verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me. So what happened to him? Well, after his third journey, he returned to Israel. He returned with gifts from the variety of congregations he had planted, and he was bringing them to the believers in Jerusalem because the believers in Jerusalem were very poor. They were poor because they were being ostracized from the Jewish community because of their faith in Messiah. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for example, if they ministered to your spiritual needs, you have an obligation to minister to their physical needs. And thus they responded very generously, gave Paul all the proceeds, all the gifts, all the money, trusted it to him, and he brought it to Jerusalem. When he got to Jerusalem, he was told that there were some believers there who were believing or thought that Paul was telling Jews that had come to faith that they no longer were Jews. They no longer needed to be submissive or compliant with the Mosaic law. Paul said, I've never taught believers anywhere that they uh, were no longer to observe the law if they so desired. No, nowhere was I saying anything of that sort. And they say, well, we would like you to make a vow and go to the temple and demonstrate to all these believers who have thought that you were teaching something else will know that you weren't teaching that way. When he got to the temple, when he entered into the temple, accusations began to fly. Innuendos began to circulate. Stories began to be told of Paul. And they were saying, Paul not only is teaching this issue regarding the Mosaic law, but he's even brought a Gentile into the temple. Paul did not. Titus was not brought into the temple, but that's what he was accused of. And a riot began to break out in the temple. As the riot began to break out, the Roman guards who were in Antonia's fortress overlooking the walls of the temple compound saw that there was a conflict. 
They rushed down to stop what was going on. And when they rushed down, they took Paul into custody. They thought, the Romans thought, that Paul was some Egyptian who had come sometime before and stirred up the crowd. So they took custody of him and transferred him to Caesarea on the coast to meet with the governor at the time to give an accounting for who he is and what he was doing. They brought him to Caesarea. Beautiful place, by the way, if you've never visited Israel. And if you do, you need to get to Caesarea. Sergio, where's Sergio? Is he here? I thought I saw. Yeah. You just came back from Israel. Isn't it beautiful? It's incredibly beautiful and wonderful. And they keep uncovering newer things all the time, right? Well, the interesting thing is here he's taking this beautiful palace, this beautiful, I guess palace is not, the, I guess it's the right word, but where the governor would stay. He wouldn't stay in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is always hot, and there's a lot of people, there's a lot of consternation. He's not staying there. He's staying on the coast where you've got the cool breeze, the water, the sun, and everything that is nice and relaxing. Paul is taken there as a prisoner. He spends how long there? Two years. Two years under house arrest in Caesarea. As he's given audience between various Roman rulers and giving testimony, finally he says, you know what? I make my appeal to Caesar. Well, with that, they have to bring him to Rome. So after two years of house arrest in Caesarea, he's then put on a boat. They set sail into the Mediterranean. Not long after getting into the Mediterranean, or shortly thereafter, a storm begins to brew. The the ship sinks. And those on board are hanging on for dear life. Paul says he suffered a day and a half of a shipwreck. I can't imagine what that would be like. Just being out in the water, you can't see land, you're hanging on to a board for like a day and a half. Everyone was saved, alive, because Paul had told them not to abandon ship. And eventually they land on the island, I think it's of Malta or somewhere. But once they get there, they then are transferred by land to Rome. This particular journey has now taken him somewhere around three to six months to make it from there to Rome. And now he's again under house arrest, and he's under house arrest for two more years in Rome. There is no way Paul ever anticipated, I shouldn't say no way, I don't think there's any way Paul anticipated that is the way he would get to Rome. But that's the way God planned it, and that's the way God intended it, because along the way he gave testimony, along the way he saved lives, and along the way he found himself more and more dependent upon God for what God would do. So in verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, and look at this, has served to advance the good news. So he tells us, when when he uses this word, by the way, to advance the good news, is a military term. It's when an army sets out to move forward in battle array against the enemy. He's saying that what God has done has advanced him like an army would advance against the enemy for the proclamation of the good news. He finds joy 
in living out God's plans and purposes, despite, look first of all, the chains that would bind him. Look what he says. As a result, it's been clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Messiah. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word. Now, here's another interesting thing in the Greek. The word for chains here is a unique word. It's a word that referred to a chain that was no longer than 18 inches long. We're not talking about just a chain, a link of metal or iron that was put together to confine someone. This is a different word, and it refers to a particular item the Romans had crafted, made out of chain links that was no longer than 18 inches, to which a prisoner was chained to a guard. Which means Paul not only was retained in house arrest, but he never had any privacy. In fact, he tells us that the whole Praetorian guard had heard the message of the gospel, of the good news, by him because of his chains. The reason for that is because, by the way, the Praetorian guard was an elite guard an elite unit of the Roman army that was assigned particularly to guard the emperor. There were at this time, although at different times it changed, but in the first century there were as many as 10,000 such troops in Rome. And what they did with the prisoners was every four hours or every six hours, a different guard would be chained to the prisoner. So they had this rotation. What that meant was that Paul, every, what did I say, four hours, six hours, every six hours he has a new person to share the gospel with. Every few hours there's a new person chained to him that you know is going to get a mouthful. Not only that, but what is Paul doing in prison? He's writing. He writes this letter. He writes a letter to the believers at Colossae. He writes a letter to the believers uh, at Ephesus. He writes a letter to Philemon. He's writing letters, and we don't know what other letters. So here they are watching him as he's writing. Probably he's making a point of reading it out loud as he's writing it. And then he's probably discussing with these individuals that are chained to him. He tells us that the whole Praetorian Guard has heard the good news. It is heard because he shared with these, with these soldiers. I said prisoners because in many ways, he's the one who's free while they're the ones that are prisoners of his. And he keeps sharing the message. They keep telling others. Then somebody else comes and before long, these 10,000 troops are hearing the good news. Now here's another interesting thing. If you look at the end of the book of Philippians, look what he says. He says, greet all the saints in Messiah. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Now, it probably doesn't refer to Caesar's immediate family. We have no record of these emperors coming in faith. And at this time, the emperor is Nero. So, so Paul is not in the hands of a kind emperor. This is one of the worst emperors, world leaders that has ever existed. 
But there were people in Caesar's palace, maybe some of his servants, maybe some of his guards, maybe some other relatives of some sort. He says, especially those in Caesar's household. So how did those in Caesar's household hear? Because of the soldiers that he's been chained to. And because they went on to say something about what Paul had said. We can find joy in the midst of our chains if we allow those chains to be a means by which the good news can be advanced. That's what Paul says. He says that it was advanced in that I was able to share these things one way or another. And so he said, first of all, the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in, I am in chains for Messiah. But not only that, but look at verse 14. He says, because of my chains, the brothers of the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. So not only did Paul's incarceration give him opportunity to share the message, advance the message like an army would advance on the battlefield. The gospel, the good news was advancing in Rome. It, there was already a congregation there, but now it is advancing among the soldiers. It's advancing in the household of Caesar. It is making progress. And not only is it progressing, but the believers are being encouraged. The believers are growing. The believers are becoming more bold despite Paul's incarceration. Now, you can imagine if you find out that that individual whom God has especially chosen as the apostle to the Gentiles, that one whom God has used so mightily over the years is now changed. You can imagine what some people might think. I might think that Paul must have sinned, because why would God have allowed him to be thrown into prison? Some might have thought, our leader is now taken from us. To whom can we turn? Who will show us the way? Depression can easily set in. Discouragement can easily set in. But Paul would not allow that to be the case. Rather, Paul's incarceration and what he did despite it served to encourage the believers more boldly than they had been before. I think that's remarkable. So we can find joy in the midst of our limitations if we seek to allow God to use those limitations in the way he may desire to use them. So here's the question. What are the chains in your life? And in my life, what things do I see or perceive as restraining me, restricting me from being free and for, from being a catalyst for the advancement of the good news? Some might say, because I am not eloquent in speech like Moses, I cannot advance the good news. But look what God did through Moses, who couldn't speak. He wrote more of the scripture. Maybe he couldn't speak, but he was a good writer. It's his image that's in the house. He couldn't be all that bad. And he didn't have really a lot of lines to worry about. Let my people go. Yeah, I could do that. So whatever his weakness was, look how God used him. 
in such a mighty and powerful way. Look at a man like Peter and the limitations he had. I mean, I'm not one that has ever really liked to make fun of Peter like many uh, preachers have over the years and stuff and pick out his flaws because whenever I look at them, I, I always, I'm now looking around the corner to see, you know, what error I'm going to fall into. But he had his weaknesses, no doubt, right? I mean, when Messiah says, I'm going to my death, he's very willing to speak up and say, that won't happen. But yet, look how God used him. 3,000 come to faith. Can you imagine just standing on the street corner proclaiming the good news? And before you know it, there are 3,000 people who are saying, yes, I would invite the Lord into my life too. I mean, that would be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? But despite Peter's lack of eloquence, despite Peter's, you know, perhaps rambunctiousness, look how God used him in leading so many to faith and building up the body. It was to him that the Lord gave the keys of the kingdom in which he unlocked the gospel, the good news, among the Jewish people at Shavuot, Acts 2, among the Gentiles when he speaks to the Cornelius and his household and family, among the Samaritans after Philip calls for him and he's given opportunity to share among them. It's amazing how God uses the weak things of this world, no? To confound the wise. What are the chains in your life that we would say, if they were removed, think of what I could do for the glory of God. And God is saying, no, 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 no. If you didn't have those chains, you wouldn't be able to. It's because of those chains that you can become as effective as the Lord, or as I, the Lord speaking, would want you to be and can make you to be. So some might feel chained at home because of children, chained at home because of lack of work right now or whatever, chained because of emotional limitations, chained because of addictive behaviors. It's the weaknesses in our lives that God wants to demonstrate his strength through. You know, just like he says, I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. I came not for the well, but for the sick. I came to demonstrate my glory, and that will come through your weaknesses, not through your strengths. And so when Paul speaks about his chains, he rejoices because God's using those chains in a very powerful, meaningful way. Check this out. He says in verse 15, not only does God use these chains, I can really identify with this. Most pastors can, anyone in leadership, but even criticisms, he's ready to rejoice in. He says, it's true, some proclaim Messiah out of envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill, the latter do in love. But look at this, the former proclaim Messiah out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, and this is amazing to me, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Is Paul like paranoid? No one's stirring up trouble for you, Paul. Take it easy, man. But they were. And he knew they were. He heard through the grapevine. Certainly he doesn't have opportunity, but he knows they're out there that are making life hard for him. And why would they do that to Paul? You know, why Paul of all people? And the guy can't even defend himself because he's chained in house arrest. But yet he says they are stirring up trouble for me. 
I can guarantee you if you take on any kind of responsibility, especially in the body of Messiah, in a local assembly, you will hear words of trouble for you. There will be the stirring up of trouble. You're not doing it well. You're not doing it enough. Not doing it frequently enough. Not considering enough. Not praying enough. I'm telling you, you will hear it. So it is dangerous turf to take responsibility. That's why a lot of people don't want to. Do you ever talk to people who don't even want to be in a body anymore? It's precisely because of this reason. I'm tired of all the criticism. I'm tired of all the negativity. I'm tired of all of that stuff. I went to a place where there would be love, and what do I find? Nothing but aggravation. But that's because our world is a world in sin. In this world and in the body of Messiah, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome both the body as well as the world, you know, we could say. But Paul says just that. And I can't imagine what they would say. If Paul really was who he was, he wouldn't be in prison. If Paul really had faith, he'd be delivered. If Paul really was righteous, God wouldn't let such a bad thing happen to him. All those kinds of things are all speculations, and they're always wrong. Because God did intend him to be in prison. God did intend him to be chained up. God did intend for him to be restrained and restricted. God did not intend to free him. Not at this point, at least. And so it's always a tenuous thing to play God. And yet these individuals, now keep this in mind, this is also something that's also striking to me because in this passage, three times, he says, they proclaim Messiah. These were not false believers. These were genuine believers in the Lord that were proclaiming Messiah. He says it three times in this passage. What that tells me is the messenger is not the issue. It's the message that's proclaimed. Now, maybe I can't say that in every instance, so I'll be cautious. But I can say this. God used a donkey to proclaim his message. You know, he did. And he can use whoever he so chooses to get his word and will across. He can use wicked people to proclaim the good news. He can use people who desire to lord it over others. As Peter says, leaders should not be doing. Why? Because they were doing it and they still do it. And Paul is telling us, even individuals that do such things can still speak the proclamation of Messiah. So we always have to be careful of what's going down. But in this instance, Paul is enduring criticisms that are beyond the pale. And notice what he tells us. He finds joy despite the criticisms. Why? Because Messiah is proclaimed. <laughs> because the truth of Messiah is made known. Messiah is proclaimed. And that's what his concern is about. That the good news would be advanced, doesn't matter if I have chains, and that the Truth of Messiah is proclaimed even by my greatest of critics. But he's honest about the reality. They are doing it to harm him. But he's grateful that the word of Messiah is going forth. And then lastly, notice he also finds joy 
despite his crisis. He says in verse 19, I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Messiah, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly, eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Messiah will be exalted in my body. Verse 21, perhaps a life verse for all of us. For me to live is Messiah, to die is gain. Paul was at the precipice of death. One false move, the emperor could kill him. His crisis was very real, and it was a life and death crisis. He had chains that restrained, he had criticism that hurt, and he had a crisis that might cost his life. But look at Paul. He can rejoice because whether he lives or dies, it is for the glory of Messiah. He can find joy in the Christ despite the crisis because Messiah is to be glorified in his body and in, and in his life. Now, let me just say, um, let me say this in closing. Um, he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain. I will, oh, excuse me, let me come back. Um, he, he says, for me to live as Messiah, to die as gain. If I go, this is verse 22, if I go on living in the, this body, this will mean fruit, fruitful labor for me. What shall I choose? He says, I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Messiah, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. I think it's really interesting that Paul's desire is for the brethren. He says, I'd rather depart, be with Messiah, but you still have need for me, and therefore I'm happy to be here. But I want to just focus for one moment as we close on this word depart. He says, I'm torn between the two, to depart or to remain. The word depart is an interesting one because it's used in different contexts. One context it's used is, again, it's a military one when the soldiers would strike their tents to move to the next location where, wherever the officers might call them. When he speaks about departing, he might mean the idea that my, my life's work is completed and now I can uh, strike the tent and I can move on to be with Messiah. But notice Paul's focus. It is fulfilling the calling God has for him. Then it's time to move on. When my life has fulfilled what God has for me to do, I'm ready to strike the tent. So he says, I don't know what's better, to depart, strike the tent, am I finished up? Or to remain and be with you. He realizes his life is yet not yet finished up. And so he's not ready to strike the tent just yet to go to be with the Lord. But it's interesting, that's what that, how that word is used. It's also used in another sense in which it's meant to depart from incarceration or to impart from being in prison. In other words, to escape. And so there is a sense in which he says, whether I should depart, escape, to get away from all of this, or to remain with you. And his conclusion is, it's more important to remain with you. No need to escape and to run away from anything, but rather simply to allow the Lord to fulfill his purpose in my life. And so in conclusion, my final thought is this. Take this phrase, make it your own. 
For me to live is Messiah, to die is gain. Be careful how you fill in the blanks. For me to live is money, and to die is to leave it all. <laughs> you know? For me to live is fame, notoriety, and to die. And I hate to say this, but I think it's true for the bulk of us and be forgotten. Did you ever think about that? You know, our ancestors, we can't go back beyond our, maybe our grandparents, maybe a great grandparent. But after that, it's all who, you know, who was a part of bringing me and you into, into our world? We don't know. They just disappeared. You walk through a graveyard and you see names of people. Who are these people? They're all but forgotten. And very soon after they're gone and their nearest relatives are gone, they're all but forgotten. So we could live for fame, but to die will be, for most of us, to be forgotten. Not long after we're gone. How do you fill in the blank? For me too, and to die is. Paul writes, for me to live is Messiah. To die is to be, is to gain because we will be with him. We can find joy no matter what our restrictions, our chains. We can find joy no matter what criticisms we might face. We can find joy no matter what crisis, even if it's life and death that we face, if for us to live is Messiah. And then to die is simply to be with him always. Father, we thank you for your word to us this day. It helps us to put into perspective what our life is to be about. Lord, you have a plan and purpose for each and every one of us. And that plan and purpose for every one of us has its valleys. For everyone has its bumps and curves. And for everyone has its plateaus and mountaintops as well. Lord, we love the plains and we love the mountaintops. We struggle with the valleys and the challenges that we face, but all is of you. For you are the one who has orchestrated our lives for what you have begun in us, as Paul says, you will complete in the day of Messiah. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, the joy that can be experienced, that can be ours, that can be found, despite these, let's call them setbacks. And we pray, Lord, that despite these setbacks, your good news would be advanced, that Messiah would be proclaimed, and that Messiah would be glorified. May for us to live be him. And may our anticipation be to be with him forever. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. 
And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.